and welcome to Stories of Scotland, where in this episode, through the portal of the Scottish Mountaineering Journals, we are continuing our gaze at landscapes of the past. I'm Jenny, a woman of the present. And I'm Annie, a person of the archives. This is an exploration of the Scottish environment, funded by the Royal Society of Literature. All right, so where are we off to in this episode, Annie of the Archives? We are riding on the wings of a fulmer to St Kilda, the most western group of islands of the Outer Hebrides. This fulmer is a gracious seabird, whose flight is sometimes compared to a spirit or a ghost. Oh, it's so lovely. The Fulmer's home is where the ragged northwestern edge of Scotland unravels into the Atlantic Ocean. 40 miles from the nearest island, the people who call this land home remain quite isolated from the rest of the country until their eventual evacuation in 1930. Mainlanders of the UK have always been fascinated with St Kilda. In the 1800s, having been left behind by the socio-economic evolution of the British Isles, the horseless, roadless and currencyless island held a certain otherworldly mystique. By the late 1800s and early 1900s, curious tourists could board the Danara Castle steamer boat in Glasgow and make the two and a half day journey to Herta the main island of St Kilda, where the small population lived. Norman Heathcote, an author, naturalist and avid climber, was one such tourist. He spent time in St Kilda in 1898 and 1899 and wrote a piece on St Kilda climbing for the Scottish Mountaineering Journal of May 1901. The island of St Kilda is probably unknown to most, if not all, the members of the Scottish Mountaineering Club as a climbing resort. I will try to give some details about the possibilities of this lonely group of rocks as a field for the mountaineer. I do not wish to encourage too many people to go there, as there is not enough room for more than a few people at a time. It's a long way off. There is no accommodation to speak of. They also have a pleasing habit of cooking all kinds of food in the same vessel. So, until you have learned to like the flavour of fulmer oil, the food is absolutely unpalatable. Sorry, Annie, we are eating your favourite seabird. My heart is breaking right now. <laughs> in all climbing operations, the St Kildans either go barefoot or wear a pair of coarse socks. It is bad for the stockings and painful to the feet, but there are so many sloping ledges to be negotiated on which the nailed soles can get no foothold. Anyone wishing to climb in St Kilda must be prepared to sacrifice his stockings and his feet. There are several ways by which the top of Soy may be reached by the sea. The first time I visited Soy, it was impossible to land at the usual place, owing to the swell. And so we rode round to the north side of the island, where the cliffs are about 1,000 feet high and look most formidable. The natives undertook to lead us to the top, but the climb looked so much more suitable for a wild goat than for a lady, though 
My sister accompanied me on all my expeditions. Norman has written about the locals of St Kilda, leading him and his sister up a sea stack. Yes, and the sea stacks that the locals climb barefoot stand out alone in the ocean. Huge columns of jagged rock, separate from the main island and unpopulated. There's many sea stacks in the waters of St Kilda, as they were once a part of the islands. However, the relentless power of the Atlantic Ocean has gradually eroded the surrounding rock away, and these island remnants are the tallest sea stacks in the UK. Stack and Armin stands at 196 metres tall. But what these stacks are truly famed for are their huge bird colonies. Norman's sister's name was Evelyn Heathcote, and she too wrote about her time on St Kilda. But her writing was published in very different spheres than her brother's. Ah, yes, the birds. I wrote a piece in Good Words, a periodical for the family in 1901. But before I read you some of my writings, I must say, our climb up soy was most remarkable despite our barefooted hosts turning us to a much more treacherous climb. Nevertheless, we made it up the cliffs, and the view from the top was breathtaking. Now, the island of St Kilda is about three miles long by one and a half broad, and rises a mere rock about 1,400 feet sheer out of the Atlantic. Not a tree or a bush, nor a horse or a pig, or even a rabbit can be seen upon it. There are, however, many sheep, a few cows, and about 70 people. But above all, there are millions of birds. Some of the stacks seem to be sacred to certain birds. Stack Levenish, off Village Bay, is the home of the common gulls. Stack Lear and Stack and Armin are tenanted only by the gannets or solen geese, as they are sometimes called. There is also the stack donna, or the bad stack, which for some unexplained reason has no birds on it at all. And then there's the puffin. The sky appears to be darkened with them and the constant rush and whir of their wings makes one feel quite giddy. <laughs> the natives catch them with a long rod, rather like a fishing rod, with a running noose at the end. And the silly bird sits and looks at this curious thing until the noose is over his head and he is a prisoner. I took the rod one day and quite distinguished myself by immediately noosing a puffin, to the great delight of the fowlers who were out with us. The puffins have such comical ways of sitting and turning their heads with their big red beaks right round. They look like self-important, consequential, little fat city gentlemen, <laughs> with their white waistcoats and black coats. Oh, we never tired of watching them. But they really were the least important of the birds on St Kilda. Oh, you can't call puffins the least important bird. The <laughs> humble, bumbling puffin. 
For me, the Puffin is the opposite of a fat city gentleman. The Puffin is an enduring, strong soul of the sea. These days, the Puffin is considered one of the key species of St Kilda, indeed an icon of the islands. However, the colonies are at huge risk because the seas are warming due to climate change, so the numbers of the majority of bird species on St Kilda are in steady decline, which is devastating to our natural environment. Well, if there's somewhere that can teach you about perseverance, it's St Kilda. I love nothing more than sitting and letting the noise of the cliffs overwhelm me. The amount of life on the sheer rock faces was truly astounding. Let me tell you some more of my adventures on the islands. I first visited the island of St Kilda in 1898 for little over a week with my brother Norman. I was quite taken by the island and the community alike, and so we returned with haste the following year, this time for the whole summer. Certainly, the world outside of St Kilda views me as eccentric. I'm an unmarried woman in my mid-thirties, cavorting to the outlying reaches of this time-capsule island. If my brother did not accompany me, it would surely be a scandal. But we were intent on climbing, photographing and sketching, and succeeded in doing plenty of all three. One lovely summer's day, after a long spell of fine weather, we made our minds to undertake a boating excursion to Stack Lee, an isolated rock of about 500 feet tall, which sits four miles to the north of St Kilda. Previous experience has taught us to take plenty of provisions, and several times our forethought in this respect has been extremely useful to other less provident companions. There is a pleasing glow of self-satisfaction as you share your last biscuit with a famished friend, but on the whole, I would prefer that the famished friend had his own biscuit. On this trip, I would be responsible for luxuries in the form of cake and chocolate. How I wished afterwards that I had been more lavish in the provision of these dainties. After the sea journey, we all managed to get ashore and somehow climbed about 300 feet of apparently perpendicular rock. A good head is essential, for you must often walk along the narrowest of ledges overhanging the sea. And once, we had to jump a deep chasm with the waves surging about 200 feet below. But it was really only a crack, hardly more than a step, and not so alarming as it sounds. Besides, the men took such good care of us. After the climb, we had all earned our luncheon and a good rest. But as the weather was becoming every moment more and more threatening, and with Gallic murmurs of wind against us and night on Bororai, every moment more audible, we dared not linger. Therefore, roped once more, we hurried down the cliff and reached the boat at about five o'clock. 
we knew we were in for a rough time. Very slowly, we drew along the shore of Bororai, but now the wind and tide were dead against us. There was no possibility of going back and landing where we once had. The waves were dashing over the rocks where we had stood, and the spray was flying hundreds of feet higher and higher. Instead, we had to round the next headland, and then, gliding suddenly under its mighty precipice, we found ourselves in complete shelter. A few moments later, we slipped under a lofty archway and into a great cave. It was obvious under these circumstances that we could neither journey home nor leave the boat. Soon after supper, a most impressive scene occurred. Norman McKinnon turned to us and said, Now we are going to make worship. Hats were removed, and the elder men offered up a few prayers very earnestly and reverently, after which all sang together some psalms in Gaelic. the most beautiful music in the grandest cathedral raised by human hands sound half so solemn or half so devotional as that quaint old chant sung under such strange circumstances. The notes appear to linger and echo in the very depths of the cave, and the untrained voices seem to murmur grand chorale. Evelyn's words are enchanting. They take us back to the sea caves of St Kilda, where we hear echoes of a way of life completely lost. She travels to the edge of the United Kingdom and very competently scales some of the toughest sea cliffs there are in Scotland. Evelyn is a really intriguing woman. She comes from an incredibly wealthy and landed background. Her mother is the eldest child of the chief of Clan MacLeod and her father is an English barrister. So she was raised in upper-class Victorian England. She's moving in the polar opposite spheres from the natives of St Kilda. And yet, this incredibly wealthy person is complaining about the burden of giving her final biscuit to a famished friend, (laughs) an inhabitant of St Kilda, who is guiding her across these incredibly treacherous paths 
that the locals were using for their self-sufficiency and survival. I mean, at least she gave them the biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) And in her writing, Evelyn is nothing but gracious about the people of St Kilda. Many who travelled to the islands did so for the novelty of the folk and their lives. But Norman and Evelyn stayed with these people for a long time, and she tried her best to learn the basics of Gaelic. She was even invited to fit the first cornerstone of the new school building. But still, it is important to remember that her uncle is Reginald MacLeod of MacLeod, who actually owns St Kilda, and therefore in some way owns the poverty of his tenants. So you could say that the people of St Kilda were treating Evelyn and her brother very graciously. (laughs) It's a bit of a tricky one because privilege and inheritance were different back then. Before the 1880s, married women couldn't even legally own property. And even after this, tradition gave inheritance to the male heir. Evelyn and Norman's uncle, Reginald, was the owner of St Kilda, but he was actually the younger brother of their mum. So St Kilda was part of their uncle's estates. It was his inheritance which had skipped past their mother. Ah, well, yeah, but still, a few custard creams aren't sinking her ship anytime soon. Well, perhaps a few custard creams and maybe a couple of cookies and a bourbon could have preserved a very unique culture on St Kilda. And in some ways, Evelyn preserved the voices of St Kilda with far more empathy and depth than her brother did. She wrote of the people's climbing, their kindness and their unique ways, and she helped preserve them for us now. Plus, her grandfather actually built the houses that the St Kildas lived in, having been appalled by the conditions of their previous thatched black houses. Well, her family still collected rent for these houses and the land that the St Kildans were on. Oh man, god, what an intricate web of privilege the landed weave, Annie. There's no escape. (laughs) (laughs) But we can wind our way back to the start of St Kilda's landed web, because there's a great bit of folklore about how the MacLeods came to own St Kilda in the first place. Has it got anything to do with custard creams? Uh, no, but there is a jammy dodger involved. Was he a bit of a ginger nut? (laughs) Tell you what, for the purpose of the story, we'll give him red hair. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way the cookie crumbles. All right, well, take that crumbly cookie and get a cup of tea, Annie because we're about to dunk our biscuits back in time as we head to the Outer Hebrides. Our tale starts at the culmination of an age-old dispute between the MacLeods of Harris and the MacDonalds of Uist. For generations, they had been fighting over who the lonely islands out to the west, out across the ocean, belonged to. They knew of St Kilda well and the people upon it, And there was occasionally some trade between the two, and sometimes some St Kildans would come over looking for work or to widen their world. But still, it didn't cross the clan folk's minds that it might be the people of St Kilda who owned St Kilda. Oh no. And so it was decided that the best way to settle this dispute once and for all was a race. Two crews of men, one from each clan, 
would race to St Kilda, and the rules were thus. 1. Boats of the same type, size and crew number were to race. 2. They were to set off from a point on the Long Isle, exactly 50 miles from St Kilda. 3. The first man to touch the islands would claim them for his clan. And 4. All swimwear worn by participants must be approved for competition by the International Swimming Federation. Um, Jenny, I think that this legend might actually predate the International Swimming Federation. Uh, I think you'd be surprised at how far back Speedos go. (laughs) They have a rich and varied history. (laughs) But surely if it's a boat race, they're not going to need your Speedos, Jenny. Ah, it is the first man who touches the aisle. It does not say how they're going to get there. Okay, let's see where this goes. (laughs) To St Kilda, funnily enough. (laughs) (laughs) And so, with much fanfare, on a cool spring day, the two boats, one crewed with McLeods and the other with McDonald's, are ready to set sail, with only one goal in mind. Ownership. Crowds were gathered, drums were beating, and the chosen crews were ready for the row of their lives. With a loud roar, they took off from the long aisle, each crew determined to bring pride to themselves and St Kilda to their clans. Is 50 miles not an exceptionally long way to row? Can you even see St Kilda from the Outer Hebrides? Uh, You can see St Kilda, yes, but also, yes, 50 miles is a really long way to row. It's 80 kilometres. For reference, that is the same distance as 1,608 International Swimming Federation approved Olympic-sized swimming pools. Or, to put it in Scottish terms, it's about the same as rowing the entire length of Loch Ness and back. It would take many hours. This is not a sprint, Annie. It's a marathon. Actually, those are called Snickers now, Jenny. And I'd say that they were chocolate bars, not biscuits, so... Ah, biscuit, biscuit. (laughs) (laughs) So for 49 miles, the two boats were nail-bitingly close. If one would pull ahead, the other would soon catch and pull ahead itself. But by the time the islands were within winning sight, the McDonald's had managed to get a few lengths lead, and the McLeods, having given it their all physically, could see the prize slipping further and further away. That is, until one lad named Call McLeod had not only shockingly ginger hair, but also an idea. For although he was physically exhausted, he wasn't mentally exhausted. He threw down his oar, he clambered to the bow of the boat, and could see out ahead that the McDonald's were now almost at land. And so he drew his sword and in one fell swoop chopped off his left hand. He dropped his sword and doubled over. But it was not pain that made him bend, but his loose hand. For he snatched it up from the deck and with his good hand he hurled it, digits splayed over the crew of the MacDonald boat and onto a rocky outcrop just ahead, an arc of blood trailing against the blue sky. And thus the race and St Kilda were won by the McLeods, thanks to the handy quick thinking of Call McLeod. Ugh. 
<laughs> All hands on deck, apparently. Except for one. <laughs> this is a horrible legend. Well, on one hand, Carl's plan does seem like a terrible idea. What if he just missed the islands and chopped it off for nothing? But on the other hand, St. Kilda is a pretty sweet prize. <laughs> but you can't have it on the other hand, Jenny. Well, technically the other hand's got St. Kilda, so again, pretty sweet prize. <laughs> <laughs> I bet his favourite biscuits are Cadbury's chocolate fingers. <laughs> we are bad people, Jenny. We shouldn't be allowed to tell this story. Well, a much better person who told this story was Euphemia McCrimmon, who was born on St Kilda around 1781, and she told a very similar version, but rather than between two clans, it was between two brothers. She was interviewed in her old age, and she said that everyone on the island knew the point where the hand had landed, for it was called Call's Point to that day. So even though this ownership legend may have been given a little bit of a helping hand by some exaggerations in history. And some speedos. <laughs> and some speedos. <laughs> we know that St Kilda was in the hands of the MacLeods for 500 years before its eventual evacuation. The islands currently belong to the National Trust for Scotland, which protects the huge bird colonies and it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Which I feel is a lovely, fitting way for the story of St Kilda to be continued, because after all, good things crumb to those who wait. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! One of my favourite St Kildan myths is that of the warrior woman. This is a story that stretches even further back, where the people of the clans and their silly politics are but a distant speck on the horizon of time. This is so far back that a vast grassy plateau stretches between St Kilda and the Outer Hebrides, connecting these islands because the water that fills the ocean is yet to fall from the skies. This vast and fertile land is ruled by a great hunter, and this hunter is our warrior woman. She spends her days traversing her lands, carried on the back of her sleek white mare. Together they make a formidable team, as they gallop over the plains and through the forests, they search for prey. Any life on the plateau is in the hands of this hunter, and it is her sharp arrows that decides their fates. She was like the original Katniss Everdeen, only she had a horse and was a goddess. So technically actually much cooler than Katniss Everdeen. Yes. She is considerably cooler than Katniss Everdeen. Although I did read in one version of the story that she could never quite get her hair to sit perfectly in a side braid. I think you'll find that ancient Celts were actually really into braiding their hair. <laughs> <laughs> they invented the side braid. Katniss is just a copy Katniss. <laughs> and also our great warrior had hunting dogs and a sword. 
After a hard day's riding and stalking prey, the hunter would take her spoils back to her home. She would return to her glen in St Kilda with a deer slung over the back of her horse, and she would enter her house built of stone hewn from the glen. So Jenny, if you were a great hunter returning home from a hard day's hunting, what would be the first thing you'd do when you get in through your door? Uh, put on the kettle and get some biscuits? Nailed it, Jenny. <laughs> and right after she put ye olde cauldron on, our hunter takes off her great helmet and places it on her handy helmet-holding standing stone. Then she takes her sword from her back and places it on her handy sword-holding standing stones. Next, she gets her cup of tea from her cauldron and puts her feet up, because it's tough work being considerably cooler than Katniss Everdeen. <laughs> I love this myth, because our warrior's house can still be found on St Kilda today, tucked away in Glenmore on the north of Herta. These are the earliest signs of human life on the island. Only the foundations of the buildings remain, but the largest was named by Martin Martin, and he called it Tai Nabanagashkoch, and this translates to the Amazon's house. And it is here that our warrior queen lived and ruled her lands. I, I find it a bit baffling that it got the popular name of the Amazon's house. I mean, Martin Martin could have pulled something from a bit closer to home. You know, he could have taken the Skarch from Irish mythology or the Shield Maiden from Norse. But instead, he thinks, ah, these St. Kildans have so much in common with the Greeks. Let's call it the Amazon house. Yeah, he, he chose the myth of a fighting warrior from the Amazons over the myth of a fighting warrior from, like, the region. And it does, it wonders if it's, like, to make it more palatable to his readers at the time. It would be, it would be, yeah. It's strange that we still call it this to this day because that's the one book that starts calling this wonderful beehive-looking house the Amazon's house and the name just really sticks. But do we know anything about these structures? Um, there's a couple of schools of thought on when the house was built and there's a lot of surrounding little buildings around it as well. This just happens to be the biggest of them. One is that it was used in the 16th and 17th centuries as a shealing. So that's a shelter for folks who were grazing away with their livestock to stay in. An extension of this is that the present day ruin of the Amazon house was actually built on top of a much older building, which could be like early historic or even medieval in age. Personally, I like the idea that the foundations are from the first settlers on St Kilda, and despite being so isolated, whoever it was that landed upon her shores found fertile land for cultivating and grazing, as well as a seemingly endless supply of birds to hunt, and so they decided to stay. And it is these buildings that birthed the St Kildan's myth of an ancient warrior woman, using the standing stones, which can still be seen today as her hat stand. I really enjoy the idea that standing stones are just old hat stands. <laughs> it suddenly explains everything about them. <laughs> However, for this building, I prefer the idea that 
it's maybe just been a shilling for hundreds of years where people stayed and grazed their beasts. I don't know. It, it makes it more grounded in, in agricultural life. I enjoy that. What if archaeologists have got it all wrong and all standing stones are just for drying clothes on and instead of a great horse in this story, it's just a great old clothes horse? Then I would eat my hat, Jenny. My big warrior helmet hat. Is that a type of biscuit? <laughs> <laughs> Is that big Vitties that do that one? <laughs> Coat it in chocolate and it's good enough. <laughs> Life on St Kilda remained virtually unchanged for centuries. The population fluctuated from between 70 and 200, but everyone was vital to the survival of the community. When the population dips too low, it signals an end of the St Kildan way of life. Much of what's known about society and culture on St Kilda is seen only through tourists' eyes, much like Evelyn and her brother. And these have encouraged some kind of myths and legends of their own, peddled as truths though. For example, there's a really popular one that's regurgitated quite a lot, that the island was once a matriarchy and that the women were completely in charge and the men were secondary to them. However, this is mere Victorian romanticisation. Because what we do know of the islands shows that it was very much a patriarchal society. All the men on the island would meet every morning in Parliament. And this isn't like Westminster Parliament, is it? With two opposing parties shouting at each other from across the aisle with the same Eton accents. <laughs> no, not at all. Rain or shine, it took place in the main street and was not about political ideologies, but rather what needed to be done that day and who was going to do it. And it was all done in very thick Gallic accents. Beautiful. So they actually got stuff done. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> and they got it done quite successfully too, most of the time. While the men had the parliament every morning, the women had informal meetings over spinning, where they discussed their tasks for the day, the affairs of the community, and compose new songs. I read a few accounts about how the women often did the heavy lifting of peat, grain, and even sheep. In the summer mornings and evenings, they would climb up over the hill and down into Glenmore, where our warrior lives, and milk the cows and ewes. They'd then carry their pails full of milk all the way back, ready to be churned. Two St Kildan women could grind and sieve a barrel of meal a day. This was hard work, and the women would often sing slow and melancholy tunes as they ground on. It was a very active existence. They'd also spin wool, work in the fields, make cheese, carry, birth and rear children, and partake in the preparation and salting of the birds that the men would scale the cliffs to catch. I love that the men meet every morning and they call it a parliament to make it sound really important and the women meet every morning and just call it a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it is. 
But the men were incredibly skilled climbers, learning the nature of the cliffs from a very young age and how to scale them as safely as they could. They were incredibly agile on the sheer rock faces as they snared and caught birds in their nests. But the women also partook in bird catching. We have a description of the 1800s when groups of women were led on an expedition of Borrarai by the Queen of St Kilda in the summer time. The Queen of St Kilda? Was, was she like a dolphin? <laughs> Sorry, that was a squeeze. I just feel like we haven't had the dolphin noise in a while and I wanted to get it in. <laughs> <laughs> that was an unpleasant squeeze, Jenny. <laughs> I'll do better next time, I promise. <laughs> The Queen of St Kilda was not a dolphin Jenny. Each year, the women would gather and, from the groups of unmarried women, pick their queen. The queen's job was to lead a group of young women to soy or borrowai for two to three weeks during midsummer on a puffin snaring expedition. Ah, yes, Evelyn wrote about snaring a puffin on her first try as well. Either she's quite the puffin catcher, or the puffins are easy targets. I would think that the puffins are very easy targets, Jenny. Anyway, the puffin snaring expedition always started with a rite to ensure that good luck befell the woman. And the first puffin that was snared was not killed. Oh, yeah! The easiest target of the easy target survives. So instead, all of the feathers was plucked from its body, apart from its tail and wings. Oh no. And this little bald beast was then released back into the air to what would probably be quite a short life. Oh, the poor thing. In that case, it's probably best to be the second easiest target, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) I'm only laughing, dear audience. To stop myself from crying. <laughs> Annie, Annie was quite upset by this part of the podcast. <laughs> In the early 1800s, up to 25,000 puffins were caught each year. And a good chunk of these would have been caught during the Queen-led expedition. Once caught, the puffins were plucked and their feathers collected. Puffin down, as well as the down from other seabirds, was one of St Kilda's main tradable goods. And visitors to the island often described the very strong taste of puffin-based meals. Oh, it gives me a weird feeling thinking of these little puffins being eaten. It's, it's kind of like when, when other cultures eat insects. I'm just, I'm not used to that idea of sustenance. But it clearly worked for the people of St Kilda, and the huge bird colonies were central to their survival for hundreds and thousands of years. By the time the island was evacuated, puffin catching was down significantly. Ah, so population decline wasn't good for the people of St Kilda, but pretty good for the puffins. The puffins had a little tea party, they got some nice biscuits. By the time the Heathcotes visited St Kilda, The island community was already much changed from previous generations. Throughout its history, the population usually sat between 100 and 200 people. However, by the 1850s, it had declined to around 70 folks, 
By 1901, the population was standing at 74. Increased contact with the outside world brought many changes. The community of St Kilda was vulnerable to outsiders bringing in infectious diseases. But then there was also a threat at home. In the 1800s, tetanus was tragically killing at times two-thirds of the newborn babies on the island. It must have been devastating. Islanders were reluctant to adopt outside medical care and for a long time refused to change their birthing techniques. It wasn't until the island minister became interested in midwifery practices that the community were able to make big strides forward. So this minister implemented some really positive changes. This included using clean swaddling for newborns to be wrapped in, using a clean knife to cut the cord, and stopping the use of fulmer oil on the umbilical cord, which was thought would help speed up the healing of it. I mean, I don't know about you, Annie, but I use fulmer oil for everything, from spots on my face to my engine oil, because in this economy, seabirds are cheaper than gas. Jenny is lying here. We do not <laughs> use fulmer oil for anything. We simply admire the lovely filmers as they fly and they're not flying towards anyone's pot. <laughs> the supposedly wound healing filmer oil was actually kept in the stomach of a gannet, so it wouldn't have been hygienic for healing wounds and it would probably clog your car engine as well, Jenny. Only one way to find out. <laughs> <laughs> But this also explains the steady decline in demand for St Kildan products. Fulmer oil and feathers were replaced by newer and cheaper products over time. The old culture was eroded over decades and could not withstand the changes enforced by time. Modern societal values replaced the island's culture and these just weren't compatible with life on Herta. Their wee society came to rely heavily on the charity of passing trawlers, so much so that some captains refused to pass St Kilda. And some even argue that life on St Kilda was extended artificially due to outside charity and help. And had it not been for this, the island would have been evacuated well before 1930. It's a difficult one, isn't it? Because if they had just allowed the people of St Kilda to be part of the modern world as opposed to a wee time capsule, they might have been able to survive there. But anyway, by the 1930s there were only 36 inhabitants remaining. The First World War had a massive impact on St Kilda. This could be a whole episode to itself. The Navy put up a signal station on Herta and for the first time, St Kilda had regular communication with the mainland. This was the final straw for young folks who could see a different way of life away from the island. St Kilda was drained by the pool of industrialization and the burgeoning new world developing beyond its shores. Many of the young folk left to find work, either on the Hebrides, the mainland, or further afield going abroad. 
The remaining St Kildans were convinced to leave the island by the nurse, Wilhelmina Barclay. She was horrified at the conditions the locals lived in and found the implementation of even the most basic medicine hard. After many years of failed crops, the islanders were struggling to support themselves. The small community was struck by the death of two women in quick succession, one of whom was Mary Giles, who died during childbirth. Had she been able to reach the mainland sooner, both her and the child would have survived. The islanders realised that the poverty on the island wasn't acceptable. And because of this, their life there wasn't sustainable. And so on the 29th of August, 1930, the islanders and their sheep left St Kilda. After thousands of years of habitation, St Kilda was returned to the birds. never returned to St Kilda. She remained close to her brother Norman. When their father passed, Norman inherited the family castle and all 7,000 acres. Evelyn and her mother were subject to the laws of primogeniture when all land and power is passed to the eldest son. However, Evelyn would have lived to have seen the first woman chief of the clan MacLeod. Laura MacLeod. Yeah, her uncle Norman, who was chief of the clan, had no male heirs, and so upon his death, her other uncle, Reginald, the owner of St Kilda, became the next chief. However, Reginald also did not have any male children, and so when he died, his daughter Flora became the first female chief of the clan. I find this story of St Kilda a fascinating one. A couple of years ago, one of my pals was begrudgingly an ecologist in St Kilda for a wee while. The fact that you say begrudgingly makes me so sad. That's like my dream. I think I would love it too, but then I think we may be at risk of romanticising it because the things that he complained about, like um, you obviously have nowhere that you can you can buy food, you've got very simple rations, Um and that he was paying a gym membership on the mainland. (laughs) (laughs) He can go to a gym. (laughs) He was the begrudging ecologist on St Kilda for a season or two, and he spoke very fondly of a snowy owl who reached the island and stayed for a spell. I keep thinking about this owl whenever I think of St Kilda. An owl amongst all of the seabirds, the puffins, the fulmers, the gannets. A snowy owl, one of the coolest owls you can get, cooler than Katniss Everdeen. Exceptional and beautiful, yet isolated. He told me that the owl was happy in St Kilda for some time, camouflaged wonderfully in the many ruined shillings eating the above-average-sized mice that live on the island. (laughs) Yet, eventually, one sunny day, this owl left, perhaps to find a snowy owl mate. 
my owl impression. <laughs> More in place than my dolphin impression. <laughs> I really liked this anecdote because it reminds me that because nature can survive somewhere doesn't really mean it belongs there. I like the kind of paradox of this, that nature can both belong in a place and not belong in a place. And I still, I still don't know completely what I think about St. Kilda and what happened to those people. Anyway, our snowy owl could have seduced the new mainland metropolitan liberal elite owl mate <laughs> with a traditional St. Kildan love song, such as this one that comes from Euphemia McCrimmon. Thou art my turtle dove, thou art my song thrush, thou art my melodious harp, in the sweet morning. Thou art my treasure, my lovely one, my huntsman. Yesterday thou gavest me the gannet and the auk. Oh, owl love. You can't go wrong when you end on the note of owl love. And on that note, thank you all so much for listening to our wee podcast. We absolutely love making this show and being a part of the independent podcasting scene. If you enjoyed this episode, then fantastic. That is exactly what we're going for as we're researching and writing and recording this show for you all. We put a lot of passion and time into writing it. And so if you'd like to support us as we do this, then you can head over to our Patreon. And by subscribing to our Patreon, you not only get access to lots of weird and wonderful little Scottish tidbits that you find, but you also support us and our little show as we continue to grow. And finally, the last line of that song that we just recited, the gannet and the auk. The auk is a bird that we haven't covered in this episode, but we do have a Patreon on it and it's a really good one. So if you're interested in that, head over there and sign up to help support us. So a warm welcome and a raised dram to our new Patreons. Kat, Erica, Mary, Madeline, JD, Ryan, Jackie Boy, Shelby, Becky, Nick, David, Laura, Marg, Wolfie, and Jody. Thank you all so much. So, I've actually got a tiny little story for you all. This is how I imagine all of you wonderful patrons. I came across a piece of lovely folklore set in St. Kilda, and it's not far from where our warrior woman lives. And it said that there was an old quern stone. So that's a large flat stone that was used for grinding corn. And it has a big hole in the middle. And they would use it in a ceremony to bless their dairy and their milk and their cattle. And what they would do is they take a small amount of milk and pour it into the middle of the quern stone. And then they'd listen for the sharp sound of the fairies who lived under the earth banging the roof of the quernstone with their spoons. So, patrons, I imagine you right now deep in the ground of St. Kilda, happy that a little bit of milk is trickling through your quernstone and banging the ceiling delightedly with your spoon. Through that action... You've now made a contract with the people of St. Kilda that you are not going to steal their milk or curse their cows. So you're very kind, benevolent fairies. Thank you so 
so much. All right. Okay, that's enough. <laughs> I see you taking a breath for more. <laughs> they also had a ceremony that was for you fairies, where they would take the cow and they'd light a big fire and they'd use salt and water to bless the cow um, so that you wouldn't want to, again, do anything bad to their cows. All right. Okay. <laughs> I I absolutely love the connection of magic between supernatural world and the dairy industry because in almost every episode that has magic in it, a cow pops up. <laughs> and for you, dear patrons, I hope you've got the most blessed milk or oat milk for our lactose intolerant <laughs> or vegan patrons. Right. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, you can also support us uh, by following us on all the social platforms where we'll put up some cool old photos from St. Kilda. Also, we were recently at a Beltane celebration at Cashel Forest and we met some fantastic walking women. It was honestly like the highlight of Annie's year so far. So if you'd like to see photos of us literally living our dreams, then you can find them on our socials. So go and give us a like, a follow and a share. And why not give us a five star review whilst you're at it? Yes, nothing brings us greater joy and motivation than reading your kind words. Thank you all so, so much for listening and supporting the show. It means everything to us. Until next time, dear friends, Slanjava. Slanjava. Oh, oh, and the fairies. I'm stopping recording. <laughs> and the fairies who live under the quern stone, they use the milk and they dunk their biscuits in it. I'm, and it's I'm, a callback to the biscuits earlier up. and it's beautiful. I'm Goodbye. <laughs> I, I'm recording now. Okay. One. Two. Three. Four. Five. Six. Seven. Eight. My boot scooting baby is driving me crazy. My obsession for St. Kilda. I just knocked my mic while dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Ricky error. <laughs> Not a tree or a bush nor a horse. Well, I'm going Scottish. <laughs> Out of the Atlantic. I'm really enjoying this accent, Jenny. It's very soothing. Um, one last biscuit pun. What other biscuits have we got? Shortbread. How have we not mentioned shortbread? The short hat. The shortbread straw. <laughs> Seems like he pulled the shortbread straw. The puffins had a little tea party. They got some nice biscuits. Some penguins. Puffins. Pluck a puffin. Not funny, Jenny. <laughs> My heart bleeds for that poor plucked puffin. <laughs> Evelyn and her mother were subject to the laws of primo... There's a reason I gave it to you. <laughs> I I hate this word. I could never get it right. Primo... It's primogeniture. Primo, primogeniture? It's okay if I say it wrong. If you say it wrong, your mum will kick up a fuss because it's like a legal word. Primo. I think we should pronounce it wrong just to fingers up to the rich people who actually go by this rule. <laughs> Primogeniture. Primo. I know. Primo. Primogeniture. Primo Primogeniture. Why don't we say primogenit Primo Can you merge the O so it sounds a bit more Scottish? <laughs> Sorry. Go. Cool.
Primogeniture. <laughs> Primogeniture. We'll take it. Take it and run. <laughs> <laughs>